Futurists are looking at the 21st century. And all myths that are uh, authentic maintain a kind of dreamlike, surreal quality. Computers are taking over now. By the year 2001, man will travel about in pneumatic people tubes. It's time once again to step into the future. I was a certified horse girl. I was one of those girls. Like, absolutely nuts about horses. I don't know why. Horses are just really, really cool animals. I still love them. When I was a kid, I had three very specific goals for my life. Number one, I wanted to be a writer when I grew up. Check. Did that. Number two, I wanted to have a really awesome garden. I did manage to make that happen too, though we don't live at that house anymore. I still own it, but now my house with the beautiful garden that I created with my own two hands is rented out, and I live, as already discussed, in an apartment in a haunted mansion in a city. I miss my garden every day. And number three, I wanted a horse farm. Or at least, like, one horse. A single, solitary horse. I desperately wanted all three of these things for myself. Like, I would lie in bed every night. Before I fell asleep, I would just imagine what it would be like when I was grown up and an author with a rad garden full of cool plants. And also, I would have horses. Here's the brutal irony of growing up. Sometimes you get kind of practical as you get older. And when my writing career started to pick up steam and I realized I could actually afford to have a horse now, uh, I found that all desire to actually own a horse had evaporated. I still love horses. They are like the best animals in the world, but they're so fucking expensive. It's like having a boat just a hole you dump money into. So now as an adult, I find that I'm very content with admiring horses from afar. Maybe I'll take riding lessons again someday, maybe. But I don't think I'm ever going to own a horse. And I'm not gonna lie, like, there's a part of me that feels like I have betrayed my younger self somewhat. Like, I've let past Libby down somehow. Like, I've turned my back on the fullness of the dream. But I think past Libby will get over it. I mean, past Libby didn't really have any understanding of how nice it is to have a savings account. This is Future Saint of a New Era. I'm Libby Grant. Your friend Vernon from Waco, Texas. And I'm going to be your orator in regards to sharing with you some things that we feel, as a body of Christ, we feel very, very important. And I want to remind you, brother, that the things that I'm going to show you are strictly biblical. And we're going to lay some points together from the scriptures which are so dynamic and so unreal that hopefully it'll do for you what it's done for me and for many other people in my own age category. So even though I've always been horse crazy, I was also an incredibly anxious child. So intensely anxious 100% of the time. I think I've mentioned before on this podcast that uh, I don't really have any happy memories from my childhood. I can only remember times when I felt afraid or otherwise like not secure in some way. I attribute pretty much all of that to my Mormon family's absolute obsession with the end of the world. God, they never shut the fuck up about it. 
And if you don't know these prophecies, then when the day dawns, it's going to take us by surprise. You see what I'm saying? My summers when I would go back to Idaho to visit that side of my family were just like a fire hose of incessant chatter about prophecies and the book of Revelation and crazy conspiracy theories and oh my god, it was just never ending. It's all anyone talked about in that place. And we look at the book of Revelation and we say, well, you know, what's Christ really like? And you look at the book of Revelation and it says, the last book of the Bible, it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. What do you mean shortly come to pass? That again is prophecy. As you can imagine, this did nothing good for my anxiety. Now, being both horse crazy and highly anxious meant that there was this constant tension within me. Like, I really wanted to ride horses, but I also was really afraid to actually do it. I mean, horses can be dangerous, obviously, and everything else in my life already seemed intensely and horribly dangerous to me, so I rarely took the opportunities that came my way to ride a horse. My dad had a neighbor who owned a beautiful Appaloosa gelding named Bud. Appaloosas were my favorite. And one day my dad convinced his neighbor to tack Bud up and let me ride him. I was very nervous, <laughs> very scared to do it. But Bud was like a really beautiful horse and he'd always seem very gentle when I'd like pet him over the fence or whatever. So I put on a brave face and said, yeah, I'm going to ride Bud. I know the exact date this story takes place. It was Tuesday, June 2nd, 1992. I know this for two reasons. First, because I checked weather data from Rexburg, Idaho. More on that in a minute. And second, because David Koresh and the Branch Davidians had just barely appeared for the first time in the national news. Now these, these cats, they don't stand up and say, hey, I've got a message, I want you to listen. They, they, they secretively bring in false doctrines, damnable heresies. A heresy is a lie against the truth. And many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. For those of you who are too young to understand the historic significance of the Branch Davidians, uh, I'll try to give the Reader's Digest version. This was a, shall we say, specialist sect of Christianity. You might reasonably call it a cult, although to be fair, I don't think we really know whether the Branch Davidians truly fit the modern definition of a cult or whether they were just like really weird compared to all the other types of Christians out there. Like, did they require their members to cut off contact with friends and family outside of the cult? There are mixed answers to that question, so maybe they were just unsavory? Anyway, they had this leader who went by the name of David Koresh. It wasn't his real name, it was like Vernon somebody. And many members of this group believed that he was the reincarnation of Jesus. Like, they thought the second coming had happened, or was currently in progress, and they behaved accordingly. The following year, in 1993, tensions between the Branch Davidians and the U.S. government would escalate to the point that the government would conduct uh, a raid on the compound the Branch Davidians lived in. An attack, really. This compound was located in Waco, Texas, and the government killed a lot of people there, like, including children. They just outright murdered American citizens. And the whole tangled story of how it got to that point is really complicated, as most dramatic things in history are. And it's not the point of this story, so I won't go into it. All you really need to know for the purposes of the story I'm telling now is that by the summer of 1992, my dad and his family were already really, really interested in David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. But the Bible says that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him show his servants some things for the future, 
Those of you that read it and they hear the words of this prophecy, it's something for the future. And keep the things that's written therein, for the time is at hand. I guess looking back, it's not surprising that my Mormon family members would be interested in this uh, group of Christians cult. Because even though the Branch Davidians had nothing to do with Mormonism, there was a certain resonance between what the Branch Davidians were already experiencing by the summer of 92 and the, shall we say, mythic underpinnings of Mormonism. You know, the Branch Davidians were experiencing a lot of unwanted attention from the U.S. government, which I can see how some people might interpret that as persecution for their religious beliefs. The Branch Davidians believed in an imminent return of Christ. They believed in prophecy, and they had a living prophet figure whom they followed. They were into polygamy. Like, there's a lot of Mormon shit in there. (laughs) That resonance with Mormon culture really made the sect compelling to my LDS family members. Even in 1992, a whole year before the actual attack on the Waco compound would happen, my family was already like 50% of them were absolutely convinced that David Koresh was actually the Messiah coming in. Like they believed he was Jesus, that the end of days had officially begun. So, you know, even though my dad was literally telling his defenseless 12-year-old child that the world had officially ended and we should all expect fire and brimstone to begin raining from the sky at any second, he was also like, hey, let's go ride that horse. (laughs) I don't know. Cognitive dissonance, man. Adults are so much stupider than you think they are when you're a kid. So we went over to the neighbor's house and I nervously climbed up into the saddle and I began to ride Bud around the corral. He really was a nice horse. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to besmirch Bud's memory, but he was, um, tense. I'm sure the fact that I was really nervous didn't help anything, but I'd ridden some before and I was finding it really difficult to control him. And at one point he just got entirely away from me and he took off at a canter for this kind of run-in shed barn thing at the other end of the corral. I could not stop him. To my surprise, I went into this state of perfect calm and like everything I'd ever learned about stopping a horse came back to me. And I did it all. Like I sat deep in the saddle, concentrated all my weight downward, quiet hands, pulling steadily on the reins. I was doing it all, but the horse would not stop. And in slow motion, I watched the door of this barn just coming at me. And I knew the horse was going to run inside and smack me right off his back. At the last second, I just laid straight back. Like I laid myself down on the croup of a cantering horse. God, I must have had ancestors who were trick riders or something. I don't know. But the lintel of that barn door went whoosh like right over me, just inches above my open eyes. And a second later, before I could even sit up, my dad grabbed me and pulled me out of the saddle. Well, the neighbor was so apologetic. He had no idea why Bud was behaving that way. You could tell he felt really, really bad. My dad and I walked home along the irrigation canal and my dad was all riled up, you know, like he thought this was somehow the neighbor's fault. I was just glad I was still alive. We got back home and I shook it off and started playing with my sister and some of my cousins. I remember they were all digging like canals and rivers in this big sandy area of the driveway and then we were going to fill up all these waterways we dug with the garden hose. I'm sure our grandparents were stoked about having their driveway dug up and flooded. So I just joined in the digging until, you know, like maybe an hour later, my dad came out of the house and he just started yelling for all of us to get inside now. All of us kids were confused and we thought we were in trouble. And as we headed inside, I glanced back over my shoulder and above the Rexburg bench, which is this geologic formation, there was this big black ring of storm clouds. And inside this circle of cloud was this weird yellowish green glow. I had never seen anything like it before, but I knew it could only mean one thing. The end of the world had come. You know 
as well as I know, because you do have an interest in spiritual things, you know that we both know that we want to know when the end is coming. Not just guess what, hey, the end's coming. But the key is when. The whole family went down into the basement and we just sat there like away from any windows, listening while the most intense storm I'd ever experienced in my life just ripped at the house and the world outside. I was crying and my dad was trying to tell me it was going to be okay. And I said, it's not going to be okay. It's the end of the world. And he kind of laughed and he said, no, it's not. It's just a tornado. That's why Bud took off running when you were riding him. He could sense that the tornado was coming and it spooked him. Well, hearing my dad say that the world was not, in fact, ending did calm me down a little, and after a while the storm abated and we all left the basement, I went outside with my dad to check for damage to my grandparents' property. Nothing serious had happened to the house, fortunately. You know, like some shingles were blown off the roof, a bunch of downed cottonwood branches. Uh, I think that might have been the time part of a tree fell on my grandparents' deck and smashed it up, but I'm really not sure if it was that storm or a different one. And there was debris all over the place, like the yard, the road, the neighbor's fields, just crap blown everywhere. But we were otherwise safe. The world had not ended, and the storm had moved on, and it was twilight now, all purple and quiet. And out over the Rexburg bench where that unsettling cloud formation had been, there was this sickle moon and a few little stars hanging in the sky. I asked my dad how he'd known it was just a storm and not the end of the world. He kind of chuckled a little bit and he said, Tornadoes are much more ordinary than God. Let's jump right into the thing I was thinking I would like to have a conversation with you about. Yes, let's do it. That's what I'm here for. Which is... What do you think gods are? Hmm. You know, I had a feeling that we were going to come at this direction. This is my friend Amalia Dillon. She's an author of fantasy novels as well as historical fiction, which she writes under her pen name Amalia Caracella, and contemporary romance, which she writes as Amalia Teresa. My first introduction to Amalia's work was through her historical fiction, which I absolutely love. And if you're a fan of writers who explore mythic retellings like Genevieve Gornacek, Sidney Pike, or Madeline Miller, you will love Amalia's work too. Not only is her prose and her character work top-notch, but she incorporates gods and other aspects of divinity into her fiction in ways that feel intensely real and right for her characters and her settings. She portrays polytheistic societies of past cultures with an incredible authenticity and honesty that tends to be missing from most other 20th and 21st century fiction that explores those same landscapes. And undoubtedly that's because Amalia herself is a polytheist, a pagan, who lives her religion and experiences a real connection with her gods every day of her life. We really got into the concept of gods and how humans relate to the divine when we had our conversation back in September. Listen in and see what you think. What do I think gods are? To me, I think that, I mean, I, as a pagan, like, I, I would classify myself as a, like, you have, like, the hard or the soft or the whatever. I, I'm a hard polytheist. So I think that the gods are all out there, right? Like, hanging out, vibing with us. And I don't know what that looks like. Like, what what are they beyond just something bigger? There's just something bigger than us, right? Like a bigger consciousness, a remnant of like the Big Bang. I like I, I don't know, but they're definitely to me something that that's very real. I don't know, ephemeral, not really 
like something imagined, right? Like I think that the thing that we like I think that what we imagine maybe influences our understanding. But I think that the gods are not contained within how we imagine them. They're bigger than that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I don't know I don't know what any divine thing is, you know? Like I don't know how to describe where it comes from, what its purpose is, if it can be said to have a purpose. I don't know how to how to talk about any of that stuff, but it's real. Like divinity, numinousness, something like like that awareness of something bigger and somehow outside of yourself, even while it's like weirdly inside of you too, like that's a real thing. Well, even people who consider themselves non-religious, I think, sense sense like a, a greaterness to something. Well, maybe. I, and I think that a lot of those people find that greaterness in, in something more grounded like the earth and nature. And, yeah, sure. But I think that distinction between what is outer and inner, I think that that's a question of resonance. Mm, okay. Right? So if you resonate on a particular, let's say, divine frequency, that, I think, is what makes the connection to the divine. Yeah. And I think that not all people necessarily resonate on the same frequency, right? And some people maybe don't resonate on, it, on a frequency that picks up anything at all. Sure, yeah. And so, like, they don't have the experiences because they don't have the the resonance. Yeah. Which doesn't mean that there's anything, like, lacking or whatever. It just means that they're, like, operating in a different spectrum. And I think that that difference in resonance accounts for, like, which gods you are able to engage with. Yeah, yeah. Or recognize or feel. I mean, I don't know if that's reality, but... <laughs> this, it's what makes sense to me because... Otherwise, I don't, I like, how do, how else do you understand, like, how else can you explain or understand why, for example, I have a particular affinity to Thor and now, like, also possibly, like, or always Poseidon, but, like, I never really felt like I had any kind of connection to Jesus, right? And I was, like, steeped in that. So how do we account for that if not it being something that's intrinsic to ourselves? Hmm. That's interesting. And interesting to think about from my perspective, too, is like the, the sort of total spiritual journey, I guess you could say. I hate it when people use that type of language. <laughs> there really is like, there's not any more accurate language to describe yeah, something yeah. like one's, one's uh, spiritual evolution or the evolution of yeah. spiritual thought. So like, okay, journey, let's call it that. But like, yeah, I started being raised in Mormonism went to kind of a more general Christianity because although I also never felt much resonance with Jesus as like a divine figure, I liked a lot of what contemporary Christianity was saying Christianity was at the time, which was right, right. love your neighbor, take care of people who are suffering, yeah. um, you know, do all these good things, which Jesus does say that in the New Testament. He also says some other shit, as it turns out, that you're like, oh, that's, that's not for me. Like, I don't think you <laughs> murder everybody who doesn't want to be a Christian. That's not cool. Yeah. <laughs> so like, when you, no actually, thanks. when you actually read the entire Bible, you're like, oh, yeah. Some things in here are not, I'm not down with that. And then I went from that to just being an atheist, which suited me very well in many ways. And then gradually that transformed into um, animism, like an awareness of 
spirit as an actual thing, like, you know, the animating life force. Mm -hmm. um, and also an awareness mm -hmm. that it's in everything. It's all over the place. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so like, mm -hmm. I could no mm -hmm. longer ignore this, this, uh, this feeling that I was like steeped in the divine at all times. It was all around me. Right. It, was, it is like behind the mundane surface of everything. Right. Um, right. And then, and then, and from there, like gradually, kind of tuning into uh, a real strong affinity for certain mythological figures or gods that just like speak to me in ways that I can't really explain. Right. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? it? It's interesting how the more you think about this stuff and open yourself up to the possibilities of it, the more it kind of just tiptoes into your life and like before you know it you're like oh I'm a polytheist or right. oh I'm an animist right or, right know, whatever. right well for me it was I had I had been raised Catholic and like very Catholic like my mother was the director of religious education at our church I was an altar server like I was like deep in it like I spent probably as much time at church as I did at like school or at home like it was like a foundational part of my upbringing I had like all the Jesus Loves Me kitted out like merch, you know, I was in it. And then around eighth grade, I felt like I wasn't like there was nothing coming back to me. Like I didn't feel any real connection. Like I, I lost faith. And at that point, I think I became like an atheist, like or at least an agnostic. Like I didn't I didn't have any experience, any spiritual experience to, to speak to. And then I got to college and I lived on a floor my freshman year with a whole bunch of Campus Crusaders for Christ. I don't know if you're familiar with that group. Picturing you living with all the Campus Crusaders for Christ is a trip, to the least. <laughs> yeah, like they were really friendly. And I, you know, I was in North Dakota. I didn't have know anyone, you know. And so I would like spend time with them. The thing that I noticed was they had a light in them right? There was something filling them up. And it was something I wanted. And I yearned for that, that light. But they couldn't ever really explain it to me, right? Like, they were, they were like, you have to just accept Jesus into your heart. And I was like, yeah, but how? <laughs> right? Like, I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand how, like what, walk me through it. And they couldn't do it. Like, they couldn't ever explain how. It was just something that just manifested for them. And I couldn't manifest that. But, like, I went back to, to Catholicism because I knew I wanted something. I knew that I didn't want what they were selling. But I knew I wanted something. And Catholicism was familiar to me. And then after graduation and after I got married, and I my husband is agnostic, and I made him go through a whole Catholic wedding for me. <laughs> I was a in a whole Catholic wedding, and I was like, "Oh shit!" <laughs> like, so I like made like he went through the whole thing because my faith was important to me. Like having faith was important to me. And then after that, like it was just a couple years, maybe not even like almost immediately. I was living; we were living in Connecticut, and he was working, and I hadn't found a job, so I had a lot of time to myself alone with my thoughts <laughs> and I feel like this was the most valuable thing that I ever could have been given yeah was this time where I was just forced to know thyself right and I realized that because I had always I had always I thought just had an overactive imagination 
right? Like, I had always, I thought, had um, imaginary friends, air quotes, right? And it was at that point that I realized, holy shit, these are not, um, like, this is not imaginary at all. Like, this is real, and it's been in my life this whole time. And, like, Thor had just been, like, quietly knocking at the door for years. <laughs> yeah. Years. Like, like my whole college experience, like, I had always, like, he had been knocking the whole time when I was, like... You're just standing out there with his two goats, like, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> and I just couldn't see him because I was trapped inside the monotheist bubble right like he was there and like I was having like engagements but I thought that they were just like in my head right like just like imaginary like writer stuff yeah and I had been raised on myths you know like I I knew the the, those other gods existed but I hadn't really I couldn't recognize them as real because if I recognized them as real it unraveled everything else right because monotheism catholicism christianity it's there is god and there is the devil maybe and that and like okay yeah you have the saints and catholicism and that's all cool but it's it's either of god or it's of evil yeah it is very rigidly binary in abrahamic religion as far as i know abrahamic religion which is not that in depth i'm very familiar with christianity of course as most people in america are yeah um, I am kind of familiar with certain aspects of Islam and Judaism, but not that much. Just like what I've learned from my friends who are Muslim and Jewish. Like, you know, it's not like I've studied these religions or practiced them myself or like really poured over their holy texts. Texts. Oh, God, I can't talk today. But from what I do know of Abrahamic religion, of the religions that Yahweh is kind of the head of, it's very my way or the highway. <laughs> And that, like, does not resonate with me, big time. Like, I don't feel like like I belong with that vision of the divine. Well, and that was a thing that I always struggled with with the Campus Crusaders, right? Because they were like, oh, well, like, you know, like, you give up your life to Jesus, and, and Jesus takes the wheel, and, like, whatever. And I was always like, mm, why do I have free will if I'm just supposed to give it up? Why would I, like, no, I don't want to give up control of my life. Right. No. Yeah. Like, that's not, no. I want to live the, my life my way. That isn't something I'm willing to do, right? And maybe that is the block, right, for me, that why I couldn't, like, I couldn't ever reach through it because I couldn't do it. And maybe that's the difference because with Thor, it never felt like I had to give up control of my life to him. It was, okay, I'm here to support you. Like, make your choices. I am ultimately responsible for my choices. Totally. I mean, I I feel that so big time. I mean, that's why, that's why, like, modern, you know, paganism or heathenry has felt like such a spiritual home to me. Like, it feels empowering. It doesn't feel like being lost yeah it doesn't feel like like uh abdicating myself to appease right. god like that has never appealed to me i i don't want to like turn over me to some divine force like why <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i think that that's part of the difference between polytheism well and at least christianity like i can't really speak to anything else Right. But but I think that that like Christianity has this real expectation of abdication. Right. And and then also conveniently that abdication is used as an excuse to make it so that you don't have to take any real responsibility because God told you to do whatever. Yes. It should be said. I know a ton of 
amazing, awesome Christians yeah, who, yeah. who don't approach Christianity that way at all, who who feel this great yeah. responsibility because they are followers of Christ to right. make the world an objectively better place, to alleviate suffering, yep. to, to support people, even if they don't yep. necessarily understand them. Like there are so many great Christians out there. Uh, one of my closest friends is this incredibly wonderful, like, super progressive very christian guy and i just love him i love being with him he's got the best like jesus vibes you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's yeah. the best of jesus <laughs> yeah yeah and i mean my whole family is catholic like except for i have a i have a jewish sister and they're all like they all strive to make the world better and catholicism i think is a little bit different from protestant christianity and uh, particularly even evangelical Christianity because Catholicism still has you have to be you're saved by works and deeds right so you have to do good in order to be deserving of salvation whereas you can't, can't just like write it off with like well I was born again so everything I do is fine it's like no that's not right right and and that's the difference between salvation by works and salvation by grace Right. And I never really I didn't I never liked salvation by grace. Like <laughs> I remember I would have these really like intense debates with the campus crusaders about the, like salvation by grace versus salvation by works and God's fruits. And because they're like their perspective is because you have God's grace, then you automatically will be doing good because that's God's fruits manifesting in you, except that that's not how it happens <laughs> it's not <laughs> you still have to choose <laughs> and you look at some of the fruits that are being manifested currently in the, the dominant strain of american christianity right i cannot believe that that is divine i cannot mm. believe that any of this you know some of the shit we've seen over the last several years that is not divinity that is something very grim yeah and and uh, and perhaps there is a divine force that uh represents those impulses in humans those darker impulses maybe that is what's coming to the fore i don't know like maybe maybe some of these people who genuinely feel that they are acting in accordance with their faith are feeling some kind of divine vibes but it's just not the kind you want <laughs> I think that there's the human and there's the divine and you have to be really careful to parse what is human like what is my personal desire and what is and what is actually divine will right and I think that a lot of people don't necessarily have that ability to parse yeah and they don't have good communities with the with the ability and the wisdom to be able to help them parse the the difference because i i mean anytime that i feel like the gods like thor is telling me something that i want to do i'm a little suspicious like is that thor or is that just me yeah i already i kind of already know the answer to this question so i'm asking the leading question but have other gods besides thor made themselves known in your life and then like how did you react to that like what did that feel like after you had sort of conceived of yourself as a devotee of thor and then this other divine force comes in and is like hey 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 you know <laughs> like <laughs> yeah uh i'm still in the i'm still in the reckoning i think <laughs> of that uh i feel early on uh i did like a a guided journey shamanic journey workshop 
And at that workshop, I didn't only meet with Thor. I also met with Frigg. And like that was that was fine. And I had I'd had other engagements in the Norse sphere. Right. So but that was all in one sphere. So it made sense to me. But I never even though I was a Thor's woman, as they say, Thor's Kona, that's that's where it comes from. Thor's Kona books. Even though I knew I was a, a Thor's woman, I had personally never thought because once Thor was real to me, I, I was like, OK, well, now everything has to be real. Like that made, <laughs> that made sense to me. I was like, it can't be just him. It must be everything, right? Like everything must be equally true because I can't like, otherwise none of this makes sense. So I already in some ways was open to that idea that there are other gods out there. I just didn't know any of them were talking to me except, and this is always how it is, right? Like you have the experience and then you look back and you realize you were having the experience. Yeah. Right. It wasn't just this. This isn't new. (laughs) You're only just newly aware. So when when I started to feel like Poseidon, like there was something happening there, I looked back and I was like, wait a minute, maybe there's a reason I love Theseus so much. Right. Like maybe maybe it's not just like, oh, yeah, I like mythology and Theseus is got a bad rap and like he doesn't deserve it maybe it's not just about like justice for Theseus in the modern pop culture like concept of him this he doesn't even get to be a god come on (laughs) um but like maybe Theseus was the the link right the connection to Poseidon but I wasn't ready because I was already so overwhelmed by Thor and that was like a whole giant crisis like it was like a, I had a, a whole quarter life crisis. Like I was really, it was really scary. Not because my spiritual experiences were scary, but because I didn't know how to, I didn't know how I was going to fit in the world anymore, in my world anymore, right? Like how do I fit into my community if I'm no longer Christian, if I'm no longer Catholic? And, and in fact, just worshiping an entirely different God that was part of the baptismal, like you used to swear at baptism, part of the baptismal vows, promises, was a, you would swear against Thor, right? Like he was uh, the equivalent of the de- the devil for a period of time in Christian history. And so, so like I was jumping off a ledge <laughs> and that was really scary. And I think that... I think Poseidon knew, right, that this was all I could handle. And he just waited, just like before him, Thor had been waiting. Are maybe these entities, whatever these things are, whatever gods are, do they choose certain people, do you think, because they need something from us? Or do we have a job to do if a god taps us on the shoulder and is like, hey, listen, we vibe together, this means something. Like, what are the implications of that for us as humans? You know, I don't know. I don't know if, I mean, I personally feel like I have a job to do, right, as a writer. But I don't know that necessarily just being able to reach the gods or connect with the gods necessarily results in a task or requires that kind of a responsibility or whatever. I think that, I think that the gods know who can speak to them. Like, I think that they know who they're connected to, who is resonating on their frequency. And it's up to us then to also recognize it and reach back. And that that's, that's the greatest gift, right, is to accept that connection. 
Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I just, I'm still left asking why. Like, why would beings as large and vast as these divine forces even care that we exist? Like, how how are we entangled? Why do humans have ant farms? <laughs> right? Point. Like, I mean, <laughs> why do we, like, love pets? why why are we always trying to make connection yeah that's a good point i mean you could just as easily say why not i mean you look at other animals in the world like you see like animals making cross species connections like they can't commun like they can't talk to each other that we know of but they're still like making friends right like ostriches work with zebras to protect against lion predation why not yeah it's just as valid a question as why yeah I think that humans have a natural impulse to make connections. And I think that, I don't think it's only us, but I think that animals, maybe, maybe all mammals, maybe all animals, I don't know, maybe all life, because we see like now we're learning how plants connect with each other. And if that's true, why should the divine be exempt also from that? I suppose, yeah. I, I mean, I I do feel very, very strongly like there is, like I have a task. Yeah. Like there's a job I I need to accomplish with my biological life yeah. before I die and return back into this divine source. I am supposed to do a thing. Yeah. It's a very specific thing. I know what it is because as soon as I could no longer ignore or like write off or explain away the fact that like divinity kept poking me with the stick and being like, hey, pay attention to this, pay attention to this, like over and over again. Like as soon as I was like, okay, there is no rational explanation for some of this shit, at least nothing that appears rational to me now, given my current understanding of physics and science and all that yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah. I can't explain this, and yet it's real. It's in my life. Right. I need to pay attention to it. So as soon as I started paying attention to it, I very uh, directly and and perhaps even aggressively, because I was a little annoyed about it, mm -hmm. sought out ways to like get closer to it and connect with it and ask it, what what do you want <laughs> right right yeah what's going on and and um the answer i received I, I won't go into details even though i know the details because uh because it's private but the answer i received in a nutshell was you need to you have a task yeah time is short your life is short you better get to work because this is important yeah like you need to do this thing for everyone like and that makes it sound like i'm not it's not some grand fucking task right like it's something along the lines of i'm supposed to write a particular book or get some particular information or something out there because it's going yeah. to impact the way a more influential person lives their life and the information they spread and um and also the the the, spe the specificity of the this message that i was given when i finally just like barged in and was like what <laughs> <laughs> what do you want so me? on brand <laughs> I know Lydia's like sitting here ignoring it until she can't even she's like ah! <laughs> but like the specificity was to the point where where I was even told it, it's not just like like it's everything that has come before you it is these divine forces that have a job for you and it's your ancestors so don't fuck it up because these people lived and died because of this Right. And and it's on you to like make it as right as you can. Yeah. 
So, so I was like, my aunt, what the ancestors? I didn't even know my ancestors. Right, right. That was when I started researching my own genealogy, which yep. surprises a lot of people because I grew up Mormon. Mormons are really into genealogy, yep. but I didn't get into it until I started having these weird intrusions into my life and this like feeling that I had a job to do, but I couldn't understand what that job was. That was when I learned about my ancestors and that was when I understood what the task was. And I take it very seriously. It is the focus of my entire life is to complete this task to the best of my ability before my time's up and I'm gone. So that's like, that's what I do with my career. All of the books I write have this mission at its heart. I, I study like metaphysically, I study ways to convey messages because my job is to convey a message, a particular message that I know. And, and, I, and I know in order to convey it effectively, I have to be subtle about it. So I'm very into like mythology, story structure, um, the role of storytelling and culture, which is what this podcast is about. Because um, I know that, that the, the tool I have, the tool this stupid biological meat suit has to work with is story. Yeah. Like that's yeah. what I use. That's what Libby does. So I'm like, all right, I got to figure out how story works. I got to figure out how it's deployed culturally. got to figure out how I can use this to accomplish the task. And like, it's nice to have a life's purpose. It's nice. And I also kind of feel like, um, I don't know, I'll stop there. I don't want to go too far into the weeds with my weird bullshit. <laughs> well, I mean, like, I feel, I feel the same way, right? Like, I feel also called, called to, to write and to tell these stories, tell the stories that I'm telling. Because I feel that it's important for people to know that they aren't alone. And particularly in the world that we live in, which is culturally Christian dominated, there isn't a lot of space for stories of pagan gods that aren't either fantasy, like just pure fantasy relegated to the imaginary, the, the unreal, the people just made it up in their head yeah or or farce right and i mean for example right thor thor love and thunder oh boy <laughs> i figured you had feelings about mcu stuff uh yeah yeah i i definitely had some feelings about thor love and thunder i mean like generally speaking i don't like marvel's thor is marvel's thor whatever but Thor Love and Thunder is a movie with an antagonist who has decided that all of the gods are selfish assholes. So they all have to die. Come on. Not everyone's Yahweh. Right? <laughs> and he goes on a god-killing spree. And I think we're supposed to see Thor as an exception to this selfish assholery. Except that the movie opens with Thor being like just like a weirdo, selfish, self-involved asshole <laughs> who, like, he's sitting on a mountaintop. He has dragged the Guardians of the Galaxy out to this planet because there's a war happening and he wants to help the people who need his help. Instead of actually helping them, the Guardians of the Galaxy are, like, fighting with the soldiers and Thor is sitting on a mountaintop just, like, hanging out, waiting, right? Like, the most powerful dude on the field sitting out... Because why? Right? And it's like a joke. Like, oh, ha ha. It's so funny. They, they're they like, Thor, quit fooling around. We need your help. And he's like, I knew you would come and ask me for help. And they're like, yeah, because you brought us here. Right? Like, so it's like, it's a farce. And then, and then he finally gets off his butt to fight 
And then he knocks down their whole temple, like their whole sacred temple, like destroys like like uh, like a whole bunch of their like property. Like, okay, fine, whatever, right? You open the like if he's supposed to be the exception, he sucks. Like he is really bad. <laughs> he's bad at it. But what really cuts me is that once again we have all of the gods treated as uncaring, unfeeling, selfish, self-involved, monstrous beings with one notable exception. One of my friends or my cousin said that he had read somewhere that they were going to include Jesus and then they didn't. And I'm like, okay, well, that doesn't help me, right? That's not helping anyone. Like, that's not, if they didn't include him because we all know why, like, that doesn't do anything to help anyone. These movies are not created in a vacuum. The narrative you're putting out in the world about all other gods that people are soaking up like sponges because it already feeds into the Christian dominant culture and predisposition, like that... So someone has to be out here with a counter narrative pushing back. And that has always like that has felt like my job so that people can see the reflections of their gods in story and know that, no, you're not living in an alternate universe. No, these threads exist like this is real. I love that. I love the work you're doing. I do think it's really, really important. It feels like right now, as we cross this threshold into the new era, which is, you know, also kind of what this podcast is about, it feels like something beyond the sort of Abrahamic, Christian-dominant worldview that we've all known in North America for the past, you know, couple hundred years or so. Uh, It feels like something else is calling to people right now. I've seen so many people, I've met so many people who are heathen or like some other variety of polytheist. Uh, So many more people in in Western culture culture who are discovering that animism uh, really like is what makes sense to them, whether it's just like the sort of blanket animism like what I use to describe my own beliefs or whether it's something more specific like Shinto or whatever like something something else something that is divine and also unfamiliar to the dominant culture is gathering people to it and I think that's interesting I think I think it says a lot of fascinating stuff about the new era itself about the thing we're moving into whatever it is like like we're really we're going into uncharted territories that's what it is to enter a new era you you expand into something bigger a bigger world than what you knew before and um it feels to me I don't know how correct I am about this and time will tell probably long after I'm dead but it feels to me like an awareness of a broader divinity, a larger divinity, and a more loving and uh, human divinity is is going to play a big part in that. Another divinity gathering in and more about the existing system revealing itself to be corrupt. And as people fall away, they look for something to fill them back up again, something to fill that hole of community of spiritual engagement and they're forced to look outside of the christian paradigm for the first time one of the things that fascinates me so much about the history of christianity like i'm super for somebody who's not a christian i am nerdy as fuck about christianity like i I am like into it but i love the history of it 
Um, it is so much more complex and so much, uh, so much more mythic than I think most Christians understand. There are a lot of Christians out there who do understand the the complexity of its history and the the mythos of of um, their own religion. I'm not trying to like say that Christians don't even see that's not true. There is a lot of flattening that happens in the in the cultural ascendance. Yeah, and like when and when you compare the prevalence, when you compare how often the story of the god who dies and is resurrected, how often that occurs throughout world mythology everywhere in the world in every native religion that we have ever that we have ever encountered, you know, like that we've ever documented as like modern anthropologists, there is this recurring figure of a god who dies and is resurrected. And I just don't understand how so many, not all, but so many modern Christians feel that their version of that ancient, ancient myth that clearly has deep meaning to humanity, how is that the only one that's real? Like, why aren't they all real? Why aren't, why isn't Dionysus and Mithra and Osiris and why weren't all those gods the, exactly the same level of reality and legitness as Jesus? Well, for that matter, why is Jesus the only essentially demigod that's real, right? I mean, you look at at the time when Jesus was born, if you look at Roman mythology and Greek mythology, it is rife with little godlings, right? People being born with a mortal mother or mortal father, maybe more rarely, and a divine parent. How is Jesus different? Yeah. And I mean, you know, growing up Mormon, I don't know how much you know about uh, Mormon cosmology, but... Like, that concept is not weird at all to somebody who grew up Mormon because the whole point of Mormonism is that any human can potentially become a god. Not like God, not like, you know, you reach nirvana and you become an enlightened human being, but literally, you can become a god in the afterlife. I mean, like, I've talked about this with a previous guest, too. Like, that's not any weirder than anything else in more mainstream denominations of Christianity. It's not weirder than a guy walking on water or turning water into wine or feeding the multitudes with fishes and loaves that he, like, waved his hand over. And Like, it's all weird. All of that shit's weird, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, yeah. I'm, well, yeah. I, so, yeah. like, to Mormons, the concept of demigods is, uh, like, super mundane. Like, yeah, we're all like literally one of our parents or, you know, both of our parents are literally divine. And we are learning, like we are like basically earthly life in Mormon theology is like going to school, going to God school. Like <laughs> you come here, you live a human life, you learn shit. Hopefully you do it well enough that you are, are able to graduate to Godhood in the afterlife. So it's not weird to a Mormon, but it is like like the, the thought that anybody else could be literally partially divine or could be a human body that carries a literal divinity within them is like heretical to some other religions. What I like to say is this is the conceit of Christianity, that it possesses the only truth. And I think that that's, the, that's why it's so problematic and why it is forcing itself to the forefront right with dominionism and if we could just if it could just give up that conceit right if christians the christians who are so determined that this is true that this is the only way if they could just give up that conceit so many problems would be solved in the world <laughs> and 
I don't know how to make that happen, but I think I think it's they're almost sowing the seeds of their own destruction at this point with that conceit. I feel like we are reaching the end of the previous era. Like, you know, we changed the way we date in Western culture uh, with the rise of Christianity. Really, the past 2,000 years have been the era of Christianity as the dominant worldview. And I feel like, yeah, I feel like we have reached the end of that cycle, that a new worldview is coming to the fore. And um, it feels to me like like those that like that dominionist style of Christianity is fighting harder to, to hang on to its power the closer it feels itself coming to its own end. Yeah. But as we know from the recurring myth of the god who dies and lives again, there will be a resurrection, you know? Like, don't, don't, there's no point in trying to cling to your power and trying to cling to your position in the world because power is ephemeral anyway. Like, life, it falls away, it dies, and something new rises in its place. And it's the new thing that rises out of the demise that is to be celebrated and worshipped. It's not the thing that falls away that, that we... Well, and that's that's also, like, that's Ragnarok too, right? Yes, yeah. This myth recurs, seriously, you guys, the myth of of life emerging out of, resur- of, out of death, like of resurrection in one form or another, is everywhere in human culture. Everywhere. Like, the it, Ragnarok is literally the destruction... The twilight of God. Yeah, the destruction of the order, the existing order, which allows a new golden age world peace peaceful world to to exist yeah and i think we are approaching our present day ragnarok and um and i think it's a good thing i i don't you know like and all the i should point out all the awesome christians i know and again i know tons we're not trying to rag on christianity here amalia and i both know and love many amazing christians and i'm sure there are some amazing christians out there listening to this right now and we love you guys we're not saying that your worldview is wrong But that's the thing, all of the, like my friend I was talking about earlier, my super progressive, like rad Jesus friend, um, he has never once tried to tell me that he's afraid for my soul or anything like that because I am a pagan. He's like, cool, you know, like (laughs) he does not think that Christianity is the one truth. Um, He thinks it is a truth. It's one facet of the truth and it's the one that resonates with him and that's why he's this is an important distinction to make also christianity jesus is the way to commune with this particular aspect of god right jesus is the way to reach that but not everybody is trying to reach that yeah and so it's still true jesus is still the way to reach this aspect of god but i'm not trying to reach that aspect of god like i got thor i'm good yeah like I know what what's waiting for me, and it's not any of that, and that's fine. And I and I think that really fundamentally, the difference between heaven and hell is heaven is communion with this aspect of God, right? And hell is just not not communion with that aspect of God. It doesn't mean that I'm not communing with other people, like like other divinity or whatever that I don't have like other ancestors or whatever that I'm communing with. It just means I'm not communing there. And that's fine. It's not dire. It's not the end of the world. I mean, to each their own. Like total respect if that's what you want. Like go for it. Run to like run to God. Like go. Like do what you are called to do. Like that's it's legitimate. It's just not for the all of us. I'm fine. In fact, uh, I'll be perfectly honest and say uh, it sounds like a better option for me. 
(laughs) (laughs) It's a great gift. Yes. That's the thing. It's not for all of us. And I think it profanes the divine to some degree when you, when anyone insists that their way must be for everyone, because we're not monolithic humans. We're all different. We all experience reality in different ways and everything has different meaning to us. We interpret things in individual ways. Why should the divine not be the same for us? And I think that it's really about when you receive wisdom from the divine, like one of the things that that in polytheism we we stress is like you can have personal revelation right from the divine, but that personal revelation may only be applicable to you. It doesn't doesn't mean just because a God told you something about how you should worship that God, you specifically, doesn't mean that's how other people should worship that God. And recognizing what is for just for me and what should be applied to everybody else is, uh, I think, where a lot of people get confused. It is. It truly is. It, it gives you a clearer picture of, of whatever we can call reality. It gets us closer to reality uh, than we can get without diversity because we can see whatever we're looking at from so many more angles, you know? Hide me over in the rocks of 
God has its twilight, you know? Everything unravels. Everything comes undone. My grandfather was the god of our family. Mormonism is like that. It's intensely patriarchal, even for an Abrahamic religion. It's all about hierarchy, and the head of any hierarchy within Mormonism is always a man. Everything anyone in my family did was done to please my grandpa. Or at least, you know, you didn't want to upset him in any way. You didn't want to piss him off or, like, make him disappointed in you. It's not that he was tyrannical in any way. He wasn't. Like, he wasn't going to hit you or anything like that. It's just that, uh, like, in Mormonism, the patriarchal order is always respected. Like, that's just the way the culture is. You defer to and seek leadership and guidance from the most senior male. So to displease my grandpa was pretty close to displeasing God. Let me try to attack the issue this way. You'd been to several churches and things just didn't hit you right. Well, remember that today when we go to church, we're trying to find something. We're trying to find God, the living God. I always liked my grandpa because, of course, he was always nice to his grandkids, right? But as I got a little older, like into my teen years, I was starting to figure out that the rigidly hierarchical structure of our family was uh, difficult for my dad to bear. The pressure to be perfect, which I've mentioned on past episodes of this podcast, it was just too much for my dad. And he went like full-on black sheep mode in attempt to, I think, salvage some of himself from this incredibly demanding culture that told him it was wrong to be who he was, to like the things he liked, to express himself in the ways he wanted to express himself. And my dad fucked up a lot. Like, I'm not trying to make him the hero of this story by any means. I mean, he eventually ended up addicted to heroin, so like... That's pretty bad. I've got no delusions on that count, you know, but also as I've left the rigid structure of Mormonism behind me, I've learned to see the world in shades of gray rather than in black and white. And even as a teenager, I was beginning to figure out that my grandpa was really the root of my dad's problems. When I was 14, my grandpa was diagnosed with congestive heart failure and we all just kind of watched him go downhill from there. Over the next couple years, as my grandpa got closer and closer to death, the whole family just sort of erupted into this weird frenzy of religious fervor. I mean, even for them, it got more fervid. If I don't believe the prophecies, I don't believe Christ. Do you dig what I'm saying? Can, can, can you relate? Look, verses 7. And in the days of the voice, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he should begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. Check it out. What did God tell the prophets? The Waco raid on the Branch Davidian compound had happened the previous year, and somehow everyone's obsession with Waco, like, tied into my grandpa's declining health. It was, it was as if my family was seeing its own destruction coming, its own dissolution, and all any of them could think to do about it was just sort of freak out. Like, despair and 
prophesy and create these ever more elaborate fantasies about their own importance. No one was immune to it except maybe the kids, my cousins. This was the point where my dad really started to slide into mental illness and addiction, like worse than he had before. Some future event of which the prophecies speak of, we need to know what that event is. Some say it's the coming of Christ. Well, the prophecy, we're supposed to take heed to it, then it would be well for us today to know what the prophecy teach about Christ's second coming. I remember my dad and one of his brothers had this feud going on about which of them was the Messiah reborn and which was the Antichrist. Like, they were each trying to get everyone in the family to rally behind one or the other of themselves as, like, the second coming of Christ and spurn the other as Satan, basically. So you know when Under the Banner of Heaven was out on Hulu and all these normal Mormons were protesting that Mormons aren't really like that? I was sitting back watching all the discourse on Twitter and thinking, the hell Mormons aren't like this? Like, my dad and his brother had a years-long feud over who was Jesus and who was Satan. Like, this is Mormonism to me. It says in verse 2, And it shall come to pass in the last days. Prophecy about the last days. That the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. In other words, God's mountain is going to be established in the top of the mountains. That's what I just read, isn't it? And shall be exalted above the hills. It's going to be exalted above the hills. And all nations shall flow into it. And all nations shall flow into it. My grandpa was an artist, a painter, like my dad was. And even as his health failed, he continued to paint. My family has always been really inventive. Like, we make gadgets. The Rixes are really good with gadgets. One of my uncles built himself an electric car in the early 80s, like, just because he wanted one. My grandpa actually invented those, uh, those playground toys where you ride on a thing that's attached to a big spring, like it bounces back and forth. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, my grandpa invented those things. The original one was called the Springo Jet, because the original design featured, like, a little rocket ship that you would ride in. He sold the patent when he was a young man for, like, not nearly enough money. Anyway, Grandpa rigged up his house and his studio with all these mechanical devices to, like, help him get around, even as he was dying. He built a chair that would take him up and down the stairs. Like, you can buy those, but he just made one for himself. He cut a slot in the floor of his studio and built this uh, mechanical platform. It was powered by drill motors. And he put a Lazy Boy chair on top of this platform, and it would go forwards and back so that he could get right up next to his canvas and paint while he was still sitting down. And then he could back off again and, like, take in the whole picture. You know, he was busy creating all these accessibility devices so he could keep painting and keep carrying on with his normal life while the rest of the family was just losing their fucking minds because they could tell that he was going to die soon. And they'd all spent their entire lives being ruled by this one man, the patriarch. Nobody knew what the family was going to look like or how it was going to operate after grandpa died. My dad was the eldest son of the family, but he was, like, notorious in our town by that time as a black sheep. So there was no way anyone in our family or in the church would accept him as the new leader of the Ricks clan. So it was just chaos. Like, that's what my dad and my brother were really fighting about on the subconscious level. It wasn't who was going to fulfill some biblical prophecy, but who would become the de facto leader of the family once the patriarch was gone. And they never settled the matter. Like, the impending void of leadership and priesthood in our family was this ulcer that kept eroding everything from within. So if the Holy Ghost is the Spirit of God and God cannot lie, then those men who spoke by this power have to be in perfect harmony with each other. Perfect harmony. Okay? My grandpa died when I was 16. Um, I took time off school to go to the funeral. I don't remember a whole lot about the funeral itself, to be honest. 
everyone managed to behave themselves. I remember that. Like, my dad and my uncle didn't get into a Jesus versus Satan fight right there in the church, so, you know, I guess that was something. We buried my grandpa in his full temple garments with the cap and apron, which is traditional for Mormons. And since he'd always loved painting so much, we asked the funeral home not to remove the paint that had been on his hands at the time of his death. And they didn't. It was nice to see that he was buried with the paint still on his hands. I remember looking at him in his coffin and thinking, he looks so small. It was just really startling for me to realize that the force that had held our family together and made it kind of functional, or at least like had given our family the illusion of function, had always just been small. Not some big divine power, not some mighty priesthood holder, but just like a little old sickly man. And I remember that even at the funeral, I could sense a difference in my family already. Like, there was this calm of acceptance. They'd spent years losing their ever-loving minds over the dissolution of the only reality they'd ever known, ascribing this mythic significance to everything. And now the moment of dissolution had come, and everyone was fine. We all just kept on living. I remember after the funeral, sometime between sunset and full night, my sister and I went out to this park with our cousins Austin and Jared and some friend of theirs, and we played around on the playground equipment, like swinging and going down the slide and stuff, and we talked about how embarrassing and ridiculous our whole family was, and under cover of night, we just behaved like totally normal teenagers. And I remember that night as we were like playing on the playground equipment, feeling this sense of relief that my grandpa was dead. I mean, I felt guilty too for feeling relieved by that because I did love him. And obviously it's always sad to lose one of your grandparents. But I had this very clear idea that now with him gone, maybe everyone would see that it was okay to just be normal. Like we didn't have to think so much about prophecy in the end times anymore, maybe? because there was no one left to impress, you know? Nobody had emerged as the clear leader of the family, the head of the hierarchy, so maybe that meant we didn't actually need to live our lives that way, after all. I remember that night really well, like swinging in the twilight and laughing and knowing that the world was still going and there was still a future ahead of me. Ahead of all of us, like everybody in the family, if we just wanted to move forward into it. Like, now we could make our lives into anything we wanted them to be. Honestly, I think that might be the first time I can remember actually being happy in my whole childhood. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, I'd love it if you take a minute to rate and review since that kicks the algorithm in the nuts and helps me find more curious weirdos like yourself. Special shout out to Rooney who tweeted about the show. Rooney, you fucking rule. Thank you. Go check out my guest, Amalia Dillon, and all her many wonderful books. You can find her at AmaliaDillon.com and Dillon is spelled D-I-L-L-I-N. If you want more from the inside of my head, read my book, The Prophet's Wife, because it's the best thing I've ever made and I really wanted to find the people who will appreciate it. 
appreciate it. Sound collage components came from the YouTube channel Haunted Jukebox. Our musical interlude was When the World's on Fire by the Carter Family in the public domain. Additional music included Faded Dream by Shane Ivers. Outro music is Run in the Mardi Gras by Boko, used with permission of Big Crown Records. For more info about this podcast, including socials and ways to contact me, visit futuresaintpod.com. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, do good magic and make good worlds. Thank you.